0: Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening to wherever you are joining us today. The world is full of uncertainty, and it is increasing at a frenetic pace. And there are many changes to the world order happening at the same time. Geopolitical, climate, AI development, sustainability, and the worlds that were once quite separate are colliding. I'm Vandana Saxena Poria, the founder of The Human Alarm Clock. And today I am turning the tables on Af Malhotra on this, the 100th edition of Straight Talk, where I'm gonna be interviewing the founder. I am gonna be cutting through the bullshit. Am I allowed to say that? And speaking to the mind that has mined over a hundred global thinkers over the past couple of years to accelerate our awareness of the biggest issues impacting our lives and, our, uh, and of the future of humanity. So, off, welcome to Straight Talk, the 100th episode. Hello.
1: Bangana. what a pleasure to be on your show today. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to uh, do a role reversal for a change. And yes, very excited about this conversation.
0: Well, thank you for doing this. But we really felt, and this is I'm speaking for many of the speakers, many of the people who are in your brilliant WhatsApp group. Um, And I'm speaking for all of us to say thank you for the work that you've done. And I think this is a really good opportunity to kind of look back over the past 100 episodes. And uh, you know, in true Straight Talk style, what I would like to do, you always ask the guests to kind of introduce themselves. And I would like to get you to introduce yourself, what brought you here today. And especially to get you to think about the the confluence of the four major themes that you're interested in. So, Arf, how did you get here? And how did you get to coming up with the idea for straight talk and mining the minds of these global thinkers?
1: Awesome. So, okay, I'm going to try and be as... um, as detailed, but also as interesting as possible. So very quickly, before I go into how we got to this place, it's very important for, I guess, everyone to know who I am to, to a large degree, because I have a, a different persona online, a different persona, uh, you know, in my work and in the philanthropic work that I do as well. So my, my journey, as you could probably imagine, if you've ever watched a Straight Talk, has been a lot about... Um, you know, at a young age, migrating from India, a place called New Delhi, when I was nine, to London in in 1988, when my family came over to England, on the auspices that I was told that we're going on some sort of a holiday. And it was my first international trip. So there I was, a nine-year-old, super excited about going to the West, because I had heard so much about it. And a lot of my cousins who lived on this side had bought me video games and toys and all sorts of things and chocolates. And so I was very excited about coming over and little did I know uh, that was the, uh, the marketing spiel that was that was fed to me by my parents. Really, it was a, it was a migration. There was a shift from our lives in New Delhi to London. That is a very momentous, important part of my life because it was the start of making friends with uncertainty. Uh, not that I knew what that was at that point, of course it was a new land, new language, new people, people from different backgrounds, different colors. I hadn't seen these before and different different way of speaking English. Although I spoke English, I spoke it differently. And I you know, got thrown into school straight away. Long story short, that was the time when I was nine that I realized that I had to find a way to adapt and adjust to new cultures, new ways of thinking. And I had to survive and then eventually try and thrive in, in this environment where I was obviously different. And I was diverse, you know, in, in, that, in, that, um, uh, in that ilk. So it started there. And then many years down the line, I ended up, you know, doing a whole bunch of different things. I come from a very liberal family, as you know, uh, Vandana. You know, my name is a, an Urdu name, although, you know, we're not from that faith. And my sister's got a similar name because my father believed in being super liberal and he was a poet as, as well as being an accomplished lawyer in the courts in in India. And so that grounding, that way of living, our family was always about integration. It was always about debate and intelligence and uh, intellectual conversations. We had all sorts of people coming in and and out of our houses, you know, um, the different places that we had, whether we had a big place or a small place, it was like a virtual hotel. You know, people came from all over the place, slept on the floor, slept in uh, two or three on, on the table, one or two here. I was always thrown out of my room. It was just one of those type of uh, home environments that, whilst a little bit inconvenient, I guess, was a breeding ground for discussion and debate. So this is part of my DNA. So it's important to know that because straight talk actually, as I, as I connect the dots back, is no coincidence because I come from a family of communicators. And we all have opinions and views, right or wrong. So here is my platform for doing so. So that's one part of my journey. Uh, I fell into technology and then I used to work for Alan Sugar's company, who was a big uh, entrepreneur in the UK called Amstrad. And then I ended up in another technology company called Fujitsu, a Japanese company that was just taking over a, a heritage technology company called ICL in the UK. So ICL was is, was going off. And that's significant because again, what I'm talking about here is constant change, constant change in my life. And so that making friends with uncertainty concept just became default. So I, I came into this uh, world of My corporate career started to work for a bunch of companies. Many of them were going through massive transformations and and change, and I was just part of that. So I learned to adapt once again. And then I ended up in a technology research company called Gartner, which was, you know, NYSE listed for a good part of my career, and climbed and and you know reached certain heights quickly, maybe too quickly, and uh, worked for the Americans for a number of years. And started to understand how cultures work differently in the UK versus America and how people are recognized differently and rewarded differently. So this concept of meritocracy became quite interesting for me. And I thought, wow, this is fantastic. If you work really hard, someone recognizes you and then you, you climb. And I thought, well, uh, I have not seen that in the UK culture as much during that time. So... That then led to another phase of my life, which was entrepreneurship. I fell into entrepreneurship. I built my own technology company, you know, raised money, went through all all the ups and downs and the the perils and the the accolades and so on and so forth. I call it the stars and stripes. And that also taught me that, you know, you have all sorts of people in the world with all sorts of skills, and it's very important not to be judgmental and to listen and to keep asking questions. So that curiosity, uh, that you know, was born out of all of these life experiences was critical. Now, what underscored all of this for me was the fact that it it sounds all, you know, pretty rosy in the grand scheme of things. But then I got thrown quite a few curveballs, you know, ill health, repeated trauma when it comes to my health, loss of a parent. Um, you know, I joke about what I call the hospital bed holiday. You know, that's how I reframe things, but I was in hospital beds very regularly. And um you know the the last few times, the midpoint of my sort of peak of pain, I, I realized I had to reframe the hospital bed and you know cannulas and drips and so on. So I used to look at the hospital bed as a holiday, so hospital bed holiday. And so I thought every time I'm here, you know, I watch some documentary, watch some Netflix, watch whatever. You know, in those days there wasn't much Netflix when I started hitting the hospital beds. And uh, read or sleep and so on. So I started to realize the power of reframing and resilience, and that the past is insignificant, really, if if you don't want it to be significant. And uh, I and just focus very much on the now. Uh, but I was also buried in the future because I was a young, dynamic, hungry, impatient immigrant in in the UK. And I wanted to make my mark and I knew I had to work 10 times harder than my white counterparts. It was obvious in everything I did and, and I saw. Uh, although the, the, working for the American company, they changed the game for me a little bit. Um, and I, then I realized that, look, life is about all of these uncertainties and uh, you just have to get up and crack on with things. And um, fast forwarding to, to COVID, I was in the United States with my wife, and my little daughter, trying to raise funds for my company. And two further things happen that were filled with uncertainty, which is, I'm coming to why Straight Talk was born. So I'm trying to raise this round, having venture capital meetings and and so on, going fine. And then suddenly I have this bout of illness where I, you know, the left side of my leg sort of numbs up and I I lose sensation from my toe toe upwards and it gets worse daily. And I think, okay, this is serious stuff because now I'm used to the, You know schizophrenia of my health and i hit the hospital and they tell me i have a pulmonary embolism which is uh, catastrophic potentially if i don't get my um self-operated or they'll have to amputate my left foot so i said no i really don't want to amputate my left foot so i'm i'm here in stanford hospital in stanford connecticut a brand new place didn't know anyone apart from one family close family friend who was so helpful and anyway going for this emergency surgery Yet again making friends with uncertainty. And gosh, that was tough. Came out of it, dusted myself off, two weeks, was ready to go raise my round again in the States, and then COVID hit. And then we took the last flight. My wife and I and my little daughter took the last flight out of JFK. Well, only when there was this emergency announcement on the television in the United States, you know, everything got blocked and it said emergency announcement. And Trump was, you know, the president then, and he was like, this is it. And so I jumped on the last plane out of JFK, back to London, and then I was at home. Now, when I was at home, I thought, God, there's chaos. There's uncertainty everywhere, ambiguity. No one knows what they're doing. And one of my dear friends, Rick Snyder, and I... Got chatting on one of these Zoom calls, and we said, "Look, this is this is insane. Why don't we bring some sanity to this?" And you know, the answers that we're getting from the governments and the various agencies—they're just not good enough. The rhetoric doesn't make sense to us. There's got to be more. So we thought, "Well, why don't we interview people who know more than us?" And in exchange, we'll learn, but also we'll be a little bit more sane because it was crazy that time. you remember, we were. In you know, sitting in offices, stuck in our homes, couldn't go out, out of the front door. It was horrible all over the world. So that's when Straight Talk was born in January, 2020. And it just started off with one conversation. In fact, him and I had the first conversation, then another, and another, and another. Rick moved on to do other things. And you know, he's still a core part of the, the, the team that built this, of course, with me. And then I carried on the journey and a hundred plus episodes later, this is the hundredth one. So this is a, a blessing. Uh, Totally self-funded, totally organic, you know, um, guests just kept coming. Authors just kept coming. And, you know, we've had some of the most prolific names on the show. You know, as you know, even, you know, early stage, we had people like one of my heroes, the guy who founded... Atari. It was a gaming console that I used to play on when I was a little kid. In fact, when I came from India, in in fact, before one of my cousins bought me an Atari console to Delhi and I used to play with it with the joystick. It had a joystick and a red button and used to play Pac-Man. If you remember, I don't know if you ever did that, or Space Raiders or Space Invaders, should I say. And so I had Nolan on my show. He was 86 twice, you know, and all sorts of other incredible guests. And so that was the genesis of... A straight talk, everything has a story behind it. And so and I've got more and more comfortable and addicted to this platform because I meet people like you. You were, of course, a guest of mine on the show. And um, I've learned so much from these hundred plus people. It's been it's been a blessing really up there, you know, as much as I've had difficult times, it's the best thing that's happened to me for a long time. And um, I really will never turn this off as long as I can help it. So anyway, I'll stop there now, but that's the story. Amazing,
0: amazing. So there's two things, like, I, I mean, well, there's many things I wanna to say to that, but the first thing that I wanna say is I remember meeting you as a nine-year-old. Um, we go back that far, don't we?
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And yeah. Um, what was really amazing for me was here was this really bright kid. Like you had so much energy and you were always smiling. There's one thing you haven't touched on in your whole story, which I think is a very important element of you. And that's music. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about music?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So going back to, you know, my father and mother, very liberal backgrounds and so on. And art was a, you know, core part of the way we lived. Our art, phys- you know, physical art, paintings. If you look right at the back, you'll see those two paintings. It's the classic black and white peacock that my mum's painted, Uma. Malhotra, who is a fantastic artist as well. And so we had art in the home. And then my father was a poet and a composer and a musician as well. And he, you know, encouraged my sister and I to get into it at a young age. I was totally disinterested in it at a very, very young age, honestly, at four, five, six, because I had a, a teacher who came and taught me something, you know, something called the tabla. It's it's an Indian percussion instrument. I'm sure many people will know of it. It's very popular now. And in fact, I here. Yeah. So just, just so this is a very different session. So here's yes. the bass drum of a, of a doubler, and there are two of them, a bass and a treble. And it's always here in, in my study. And what you see behind you is me. That's why I don't put up images or screens or dull the background out because this is me and this is what I represent. Art, music, mm-hmm. you know, paintings, books and so on and plants. And um, so, yeah, my father was into music. And when we moved to the UK, uh, my sister is a very accomplished singer. She's a lawyer as well, very accomplished singer. Uh, She had a stage performance somewhere and the instrumentalist, the tabla player couldn't make it. So my dad said, well, why don't you play? And I used to just whack it, you know, whack the drum. And so I figured out some really interesting things. So I went for this concert in someone's home and I started to bang, bang the drum. I actually have a video of that particular show believe it or not it's crazy and I was banging the drum it was about this big and the drum was that big so the drum was bigger than me so I was hidden somewhere behind the drum swacking it and I started to realize that people in the audience started to clap and were enamored by me and so I thought wow this is pretty good stuff so I just whack this thing and then everyone looks at me and then I used to love eating something called pan which is a betel nut a a nice sort of um, post-dinner digestive and I was I used to love it and so all these young um you know aunties at that point they were, they were definitely young then much older now used to give me these these little the, these little treats and I used to eat them and I used to play tabla and uh that was the start of me realizing that If someone gives you recognition for something, you might be good at it. And that incentivizes and motivates you to do more and more of it. And then I was a demon. I practiced hours and I got more recognition. I was on stage. I was performing from a very young age. I would have done at least 700 concerts with my sister. And that's a lot of concerts, a lot of, you know, a lot of hours of practice. Of failing as well, of course, of just playing and performing on stage, which is why I love the stage. I'm not not fearful of the stage. In fact, I feel more comfortable on stage because of that reason, just because I was on it a lot. Uh, Whether I was doing anything useful or not, I don't know. I was performing on it a lot. And so music is a part of my life. I've performed with some great artists from the subcontinent. um, And once I even performed with Cliff Frischard, believe it or not, uh, Tabla, which is, really? yeah, the most bizarre experience ever. Um, That's another story. And uh, once I was performing and Phil Collins was, you know, at this party where I was performing uh, this huge mansion somewhere, I was performing with a sitar player and he came up to me and he was in the audience. And uh, I was like, wow, Phil Collins. And uh, you know, I've had some incredible moments with music and music, I think, you know, thanks for asking me, music is a dimension of my life and should be a dimension of your life if you are into music or art, just something out of biz- outside of business, outside of the norm that has helped me build so many relationships and cut through the noise, and break the ice, whatever term you'd like to use. And it's been a part of who I am. It's defined me to such an extent. And every time I'm super stressed or, you know, I think, Things are very difficult. I hit my instrument and I perform and I play just for myself. And and sometimes I do shows as well. And uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, it is um, it is my meditation to a large extent. So that's music for me. Yeah,
0: yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up for a number of reasons, because I think in this very crazy world that we have, Uh, we all need outlets and um, what's really interesting and we're going to talk about neuroscience a bit later on but uh, when you are in that zone when you're performing it actually gives your body and your brain time to be processing everything else without fear so it's it's a really beautiful time when you can get into that zone and I honestly I have to I'm not going to embarrass you but I do remember you as a kid and you were just you know, in our house, we used to have these big parties, your dad, your mum, your sister would come along with you and yeah. and the yeah. instruments would just come out and everyone would start singing and you'd be playing and you were just this live wire. And, you know, even back then, I knew you were going to go places and I'm so, so proud and humbled to know you now with everything oh, that you thank you. you. Oh, um, thank I, you. I thank you very much. I think it's incredible. And I, I'm glad you brought up music because I think music, art... Um, there are patterns there. And I yeah. think those patterns play in our mind um, in very different ways. Um, and I think it, it really helps, I think, move the conversation onto what I really wanna get into. I, I, I feel that you, um, uh, you might not frame it like this, but I, I feel that you are really in the realm of complexity science. I think you, you look at the interrelationships between complex adaptive systems, and the four chosen themes that you have impact each other to, to almost create one larger complex adaptive system, which is what humanity is going through um, at the moment. I don't know if you see it like that, but I certainly see that all these elements come yeah. together. And so what I'd really you know like to talk to you about, you've, you've talked about moving from one continent to another. You've talked about moving from east to west. You've talked about digital because you've got that, that Mm -hmm. tech background, Um, you've talked about speaking to people about everything that's going on in the world. So looking at geopolitics and, uh, you know, how that manifests and what we hear. And when you cut through the noise, what's actually there? Um, So so we've already talked about almost three themes, And we've also talked about your health and how, Mm -hmm. you know, the experiences that you've had with yourself have made you question uh, you know, what we do and why we do it to ourselves. And, and you've experienced both Eastern and Western medicine. Um, and mm. that's another theme that I think we're, we're going to go on to talk about. So, you know, I've kind of broached it very broadly. But why don't you just introduce us to the four themes that are really yeah. taking over yeah. your life now and you're working on?
1: Yeah, thank you, Vandana. So, you know, with Straight Talk, we, we felt there were four very important themes or dimensions that we wanted to dig into further. The first one really is a very important one, which is the digital world order. And each one of these themes, by the way, I may add, is uh, sort of, there's a duality to it. There is uh, a bipolarity bipolar- to it in the sense that it's two, two sides of a coin, you know, often. So when you look at the digital world order, we've been busy trying to figure out, speaking to great minds out there, what is the good side and what is the bad side of digital and what are the implications of the good side and implications of the bad side on business and society on us on us as human beings and that has been definitely one of the most fascinating aspects of this uh, this podcast over the course of the last 3 years because it's opened my eyes to numerous possibilities and numerous Uh, sort of realities that we could create for ourselves in the future, depending on the actions we take, of course, and the way we think about things, which is, you know, the awareness and the ideologies and the values that we have. So that's the first.
0: Yeah, yeah, let me just interrupt you there and just ask you, I know uh, you're going to talk about the four, but what I also would love for you to do is to to just mention a few of the people that you've interviewed that you thought were really relevant to those areas. And then we'll Dive
1: a bit deeper into each. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I will do. So let me first start with um, the, the tougher, the bad side of digital, and who who have really been sort of pretty inspired by inspired by all my guests, of course. Um, we brought on, you know, my first education on on geopolitics and digital came from a guy called Mark Stallman. And Mark was introduced to me a few years ago. He's an absolute genius mind who has been working off Marshall McLuhan's work, as you're aware, and many other thinkers. Pretty much coming to a point where he coined this term, the three spheres. And the three spheres is about East, the rise of the East, the decline of the West, and the role digital is going to play uh, in, in, in that journey. And we're seeing some of that play out today. And Mark Stallman's entire sort of thinking process then compelled me to speak to people like Bill Davido, Bill Davido, uh, a hedge fund, you know, um, manager in his seventies, maybe mid seventies, early uh, early eighties, perhaps, you know, a, a prolific author. He came on my show, very well-known um, Lisa, and talked about humanism and talked about how it's so important to remain human, although there's so much digital around us, you know, the mobile phone, the potential metaverse that we might enter in. Now look at ChatGPT4, 30th November was a game-changing date because it shifted the world and mainstream uh, created a, a sense of awareness amongst all of us that technology like AI, generative AI, in the form of this chat GPT model can allow us to do things that we never imagined we could. And this is just scratching the surface and the pace at which it's going to go is going to be insane. And it's not the only technology, there are many other technologies. So that was this concept of being human with digital is very, very important. I started to realize, I started to fear, in fact, started to realize that, oh my God, there is, there's stuff we need to be careful about, you know, ethics around AI being very, very careful about it. I experienced that firsthand as a tech startup founder when my company was doing some AI work and some of the engineers who came from a certain background were coding certain things. And I realized they had deep unconscious bias, which was, of course, detrimental to other marginalized communities, you know, but they because they wrote the code. And then the code is based on some actions and then eventually some form of a process, automated process that gets fulfilled or algorithms and then a software. And so no one really questions, it, questions the whole thing once it's working and you just carry on with it until someone discovers that actually it's got some inherent biases. And we've heard about this, you know, when it comes to facial recognition, where certain, you know, black people were marginalized versus white people. For example, credit, you know, credit where certain data related to a person who's from a marginal background versus non-marginal background or more privileged background. Um, was quite clearly different, and therefore they were discriminated discriminated against. So uh, I've had those sorts of uh, incredible people. I've just recently had Rohit Delvar on the show, a, a fantastic author. I think he's written like 15 books or something. And, you know, his book, Incredible, um Aftershocks and Opportunities. This is part two of it. There was another one, of course, part one. There may be a part three. You know, Rohit talks a lot about, you know, the revolution of AI and the good side and the bad side. And look, it's like the dystopian, utopian argument on digital, right? It could go in any direction. We now need to be very careful about how uh, involved we get and how dependent we become on new technologies. We're already dependent on you know, this, the mobile phone. It's a supercomputer in our hands. Mm. Um, And we're addicted to it. And we now need to stop for a moment and reflect and try and figure out whether that's going to be good for, us in in the you know endeavor or in the journey of being human which is you know being in the present hanging out with your family spending time with those that you love without being distracted and picking up a mobile device or you know whatever it may be so i've had all sorts of very very interesting guests i mean i um you know i i interviewed uh talking about digital again i interviewed a fantastic young author jimmy sonny very recently and jimmy is a real brilliant guy he um i learn everything you know i learn a lot from every one of these straight talks and and this is his book go go out and buy it it's called the founders a very recent book it's about 500 pages of history and i said to jimmy you're actually a technology historian you're not an author you're a technology historian he was like Good point. I will go and tell my seven-year-old. I'm a technology historian. I think think you're a theologist. Uh, Don't undermine or undersell yourself. And Jimmy talks about the journey of this man, Elon Musk. Literally, he's been studying Elon Musk from his young age, age of 12, to when he sold PayPal. And 25, 30 years of pretty much every event in his life, when he built his first company, how he wrote different... Articles about you know the internet, the revolution of the internet, energy technology, and multiplanetary travel he's been writing about it for years he didn't just come up with the idea you know eight years ago and then he decided to build Starlink and so digital has people in it who have good intent and can create incredible disruptions that that is good for society, good for business, good for people, good for well-being and there are also people who are the the more worrying, dark characters who then misuse that technology, you know, on the dark web, for example, or even, you know, crypto, Whilst it's a great innovation, a lot of criminal trade does happen through crypto. Just the other day, I read an article about um, a company called um, Square, which is now called Block, I think, and it's a great company, but there was an article by Hindenburg Research that suggests that, uh, you know, there is more criminal activity going on in that app than there is in... Than others of course total disclaimer I'm not saying that's the case but there th- there is a sense of caution we need to exercise you me everyone around this very cool and exciting world of digital technologies and finally I just have to say you know when you interview these people you realize that um, technology in itself is not about a country. So it's not about the United States. It's not about England, the UK. It's not about Europe. Many of these, or the East, like India or China, they all on a mission to accelerate their AI capabilities and their nanotechnology capabilities, their semiconductor capabilities, their defense capabilities, and so on. And it doesn't stop them. And I've interviewed people out of India, if I may. You know, I had a fantastic, one of my best straight talks uh, related to India, was with Dr. R. Mishelka, who you would have heard of. And Dr. Mishelka yeah. was such a, a refreshing conversation and a mentor now to me, where he talked about how the West has been you know, pioneering digital technologies for a number of years. And if you look at India, it's now emerging very rapidly. And the geopolitical, you talked about geopolitics, balances change. I mean, look around the world. You talked about the, the trends, war uh, inflation, you know, um, energy crisis, uh, f- you know, food crisis, all of these things are happening at the same time. Yet people like our uh, Michelle, you know, in his book, um, he's, he's got numerous books. One is called leap leapfrogging or pole vaulting. Pole vaulting. Uh, yeah. It's here. Yeah, leap, yeah. Leapfrog to pole vault. Yeah. There you go. You know, one, yeah. Yeah. Where he talks about, he talks about this, this, uh, this huge pole vault that yeah. India is going to make uh, bypassing a lot of those technological experiences that we've been through in the West and just jumping right into a new dimension and sphere. Now that sounds exciting, but then again, you know, a disclaimer there is uh, how does one deal with it in the society of India, which has been grounded in spirituality and yoga that you know, and what are going to be the conflicts and the contradictions that come from this incredibly exciting technology, and then I spoke to Dr. Arvind Chinturi, you know, who's one of my guests, the uh, the new organ, the new age organization, brilliant guy. And he talked about, he educated me. He's actually the the CEO for Deshpande Startups, a fantastic foundation in Hubli near Bangalore. And he talks about India too. And he was talking about people. He's saying, you know, India's biggest demographic competitive advantage is its young people. You know. Um, Fifty percent odd of the of the people of India under the age of twenty eight or thereabouts, and uh, they're innovating, and they're not just innovating in tier one cities; they're innovating in tier two, tier three cities on um, all sorts of interesting things—not just the the, you know, the old school e-commerce and AI related stuff, but also in agriculture, agri tech. So I've learned so much about the different faces of digital. It's not just about one technology; it's about the inter connection between technologies and countries and policies and cultures and people so i'll pause there but that's been a small synopsis of what i've learned about you know the world of digital the good and the bad
0: yeah no i uh, thank you for that i think that's a fantastic summary i do you, do you know there's a big connection between Ragunath, marshalka arvin Chintre, myself and some of your other speakers we're all based in Pune. Pune is the epicentre of disruptive innovation i think um, yeah. so that's an interesting one up we need you over here much much more <laughs> yeah, i'm doing the show. <laughs> i'm doing the show from pune at the moment deal <laughs> yeah yeah no that would be great now it's it's um it's really great to to hear you speak about that because um you when we talked a couple of weeks ago you you were very um insistent on calling it the east digital west sandwich yeah. and i thought that was really interesting do you want to just explain that a bit and then i wanted to give um, you know get your thoughts on a couple of things that i've seen because i've been living here for 18 years you know and and i've seen a lot of the changes so it'd be interesting to just back and forth on that a little
1: yeah, sure. Maybe I'll give an example of India because we we're talking about Pune and we're talking about India and the sandwich concept. So thank you for reminding me. So you obviously have East as the, the top layer of the bread in the sandwich. And you know, there's a lot of change going on in the East. Now, what does the East mean? How do you define it? You know, that's the question that comes up again and again. And it means different things to different people. But of course, you know, you gave me a great example of um the global north, I think you said, and the global south, correct me if I'm wrong, and um, uh-huh. depending on where you're from, the equator. So that's another way of looking at the east and the west. Um, either way, the east is, you know, places like China, places like India, Indonesia, uh, Bangladesh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Japan, you know, that, that, that hemisphere, really. And digital is as part of the sandwich, the filling in the middle, digital is going to be the the decider. It's going to be the defining moment for these nations. And uh, who invests in digital the most? What outcomes you get from that investment? The talent, you know, the the, the demographic, you know, uh, some of the older generation in the West, the next 20 years may or may not be around, um, where are all the young people is the big question, and it's clear that they're concentrated in certain countries, whether you like it or not. Well, India is one of them. Uh, Africa mm-hmm. as a continent uh, over the next 20, 30 years has even younger people who, have, who need time to upscale and, and upgrade themselves and so on and so forth. So if you think of the world in the next 30 to 50 years, there is no doubt that there is a shift of priorities and power and maybe an equilibrium even to some extent. You know, I'm not saying one dominates the other, but I think could be even an equilibrium of some sort where the East has a much greater voice and digital will be one of the reasons, clear reasons as to why that is the case. If you take India, for example, a great example, I had um, a dear colleague travel to India recently for a delegation that we ran and he was in Mumbai and and Bangalore and Hubli and so on. Totally fascinated by the non-cash economy of India. Non cash economy of 1.4 billion people to the extent that, and you will concur, uh, you know, if you need a massage, you'll get it at home and you'll pay through some sort of a, a, a payment app or a QR code. If you want to go and have that betel nut leaf, the barn that I love so much, at a local vendor that was probably the size of my table here, about this big, you know, square, uh, very basic environment, basic electricity, you know, just a, a little wire hanging off with a bulb so if you look at it optically you're thinking really they don't take anything but uh, you know mobile payments so you have a QR code and you pay for your pan you pay for your you know your product right there you know uh, dentists doctors um tuitions, you know education uh, you know home help the list goes on and on car servicing I, it just goes on all of it can happen from home paid through a a wallet or a mobile payments system. And that is not just, you know, in the past in India, it was constantly, you know, dominated by commercial organizations. And yes, at the beginning it was. And now you see a shift where the government has, you know, they've got something called the India stack. They call it the India stack. Essentially it's a set of technologies. It's not Indian technology, but it's a set of technologies when stacked together can create a very powerful uh, payments environment that's secure for 1.4 billion people, and uh, that is that is of epic proportions. It's the enormity is unprecedented, and most Western countries that have find it hard to fathom and figure out how that could even be done. Well, it's done and it's happening. And there's something called, I think, universal payments infrastructure or UPI, which is now being launched in India. And UPI is going to change the face of payments to another level where loans, loans will start to be delivered through, you know, um, bank to bank, P2P in a really rapid fashion. And these are loans to people who, you know, sometimes come from, um, very sort of underprivileged backgrounds they don't really have a steady income per se they don't work in jobs like in the west where we have a pays you own you know they're they work in the in the local food mart or the the, the local talawala the, the small shop that on the street selling pan for example and they don't have the same steady income stream, but they're now banked. They were unbanked before, they're now banked, and they only operate on their mobile phones. And they don't need to have Apple phones. They can have any old smartphone there. And the, that's the other thing. I mean, the smartphone revolution in India, the kind of providers you see out there, Apple of course will gain market share now because of what's going on, but you have all sorts of platforms running, all sorts of phone brands that i I'd never even heard of in my life that operates in India from, from all over the world. They're not just Indian innovations. So, for a country like India that is revolutionizing payments, they've leapfrogged into that world of mobile payments. There's no real cash going on there. In contrast, you go to Japan, and Japan is such an advanced economy with technology. Once When we were kids, that's all we were taught was, you know think technology innovation, think Japan. And they always did have the best technology. Saying that, like I said, one of my buddies was in Japan just now who went to India and said, you'd be shocked how much of the transactions that he was, you know, he was, uh, you know, conducting himself just as a tourist was cash-based. And so he just couldn't believe, he just couldn't believe it that Japan wasn't as advanced as India when it came to payments. And so this is the dichotomy. This is the contradiction. This is the sort of, um, uh, you know... Uh, confusion many people have in the West around, well, you know, India's infrastructure is awful. I mean, they just can't be, I mean, they just can't be advanced. They haven't even fixed their infrastructure yet. There's still poverty yet again. They have the, and and, you know, they have the most advanced um, payment infrastructure in the world. So these, why I mention this is because I don't, I don't think we can now study the world and make these, you know, huge Uh, jump to these huge conclusions, should I say, like we were taught and, you know, I was taught in my MBA and all the other courses that I did in the past and management gurus used to teach us, well, this is this way and that's that way and this is this way and that's the formula here. It's all been disrupted and intertwined and meshed together like a Mm paella, like a kichri, right? And Mm -hmm. so those who can survive and thrive in that uncertainty, even call it even organized Mm -hmm. chaos, have this incredible competitive advantage that people who are used to structure and predictability and certainty will be lost in. So I'll pause there, but that, um, that is my sandwich for you. And of course the dark side of that, I must mention of the, of the is is there as well. And then West, I've already talked about, you know, the, the plight of the West. There's no doubt that the West were first movers on a lot of things. The downside of being a first mover is you've got to deal with legacy. You know, look at the tube system in the UK, one of the most advanced, systems on the planet. But of course, there's so much legacy Legacy now, old infrastructure, old tunnels, old technology, which was brand new then. And we didn't you know, update it fast enough uh, until end of life. Now it's very difficult for us to make the update. So it's all patchwork. It's all sort of plasters being put on the system. So that's just the course of technological change and evolution. And, and India will see that in 75 or 100 years if it doesn't learn from the West, should I say.
0: No, so so interesting. Um, of oh, sorry, there's yeah. Can you hear the dog?
1: No, that's okay. That's good. This is an authentic, yeah. straight talking session with you. <laughs>
0: You said, um, no, I loved what you said. And I, I think it's worth bringing this, like we may be, be talking more India, UK, we've both got connections to them, but the ramifications for the rest of the world are huge as well. And so just, just to talk to you briefly on some of the points that you brought up, it might be worth knowing that the highest or, or the biggest change that we're seeing in the banks in terms of their fastest growing portfolios are to those tiny, small, um, customers it's unsecured lending and um, I think HDFC was saying the other day that that's their fastest growing segment why because now you know I think Modi has done a couple of master strokes and he's had this huge population that he could test it on and he's had the best brains you know people like Nandan Nilakani, um and co at the helm supporting him with the delivery of something like Adar, which is the identity right. Um, system so we all know who we all are and also getting money into bank accounts so you know at the beginning of his tenure he said I'm going to get three four hundred million banked and he's done that and exactly what you said about the fast payment system the UPI systems um, and bank to bank has been fantastic because whereas um, you know a, a street trader couldn't get a loan in the past without going to a loan shark because no bank would give them a loan. The bank is now seeing literally 8,000 tiny transactions happening, giving the person X amount of money and therefore the bank is willing to lend. Of course, at a much higher rate, but at a much lower rate than they would get from um, a, a shark. So they're they're making a sector that was previously unbankable bankable, and they're actually sweating those as yeah. assets, which yeah. which is brilliant. And now Modi is, you know, as part of his role with the uh, with the G twenty, he's he's saying, you know what, I'm going di- to divert from the normal agenda of the G twenty. I am going to talk about global south and global north, and I'm going to say, Africa as a continent, we are much closer to you in some ways, so let's see the rise of Africa. What is it that we can share with you, whether it's UPI, um, digital payments, whether it's um, identity, uh, we mm. wanna support your growth. Um, mm. Initially, what I saw with, with the conversations um, was that the, the Global North were a bit miffed by mm. this, but the Global South has become stronger and stronger. And I think I, I think the agendas are differing. So what you say about um, the decline um, of of the West, I call it the you know almost the demise of the West and the rise of the East. And as you say, digital is such an important part um, of that of that whole equation. So thank you, uh, thank you for for sharing that. Um, and I think one of the impacts of the rise of the West, uh, sorry, the rise of the East or the global South is that more diverse voices are being heard. Right. And that kind of moves quite smoothly into the next bit that I wanted to talk to um, about, uh, talk to you about, which is diversity economics. Um, because this is one area, you know, maybe what I said isn't quite impacting the way you're looking at it now, but I'm certainly seeing that the voice of the, of the East is becoming louder. But, but really, is it? Um, and you've had some really interesting people on your show talking about the idea of diversity. Um, There was a brilliant session with Mary Frances Winter, um, from what I remember, and her talking about, you know, the challenge is you may have um, an Asian or a South American CEO, but if they're reporting to the vast majority white, you know, male privileged shareholders, it doesn't matter that they've got diversity, can they really be diverse? And so I I really want to talk to you a little bit about the idea of diversity economics. I know that you've been speaking to lots of people within diversity, inclusion, equity, and you've been conducting your own research. Um, You know, one would hope that with the number of years that diversity and inclusion has been talked about, the situation would be getting better. But I I think the more you kind of open Pandora's box, the more you unpack this, the more you see that there is inequity um, in diversity, so so can you talk us through about what's going wrong and why you decided you wanted to concentrate as a second theme on this idea of diversity economics?
1: Yeah, sure. So I'll, I'll take you back to something quite funny. It's a funny story because someone asked me why, like you, uh, I did this, and I was trying to figure out why I did this outside of you know the obvious reason. You know, uh, I'm from a a diverse community myself, and I live in the UK. I've had some great experiences and some tough experiences and so on. I'm an ex-corporate technology entrepreneur, philanthropist, etc. Apart from all of that, when I was a young boy, and it's amazing how childhood has such a huge role to play in a lot of who we who we become and who we are and how we think. And we tend to forget that, or we don't have enough time to think about connecting the dots and trying to figure out why am I the the way I am? And what does my childhood have to do with it? Sometimes it's not cool. So you try and cut that cord or you do some therapy or some CBT and you break that apart because you don't want that connection uh, with some bad experiences. And often actually some of the good experiences have made you the person you are. And watching television and watching TV and shows is a large part of um, what influences us outside of school and parents and so on. Right. And funny, we don't actually take that into account. Now we do because we say social media, but you know, Netflix and all of these channels that we watch and television and movies we watch, they do define an our thinking, if not forever in that moment. So for me, one of those forever changes came from watching star Trek. I used to watch star Trek back in India as well. When I was a little kid in black and white with captain Kirk. And then when I was in the UK in color and, um, there was colour in India as well, but you know, I was watching it from a long time, long time ago when I was a little kid. Probably w- way too young. It's probably had a you know, a censor on it that I ignored. I was fascinated by the Starship Enterprise and that it went to all these galaxies and the fact that it you know had propulsion and it could w- do warp speed and people could teleport. And I was like, wow. That was anyway fascinating. And that's science fiction, I believe, is the predictor of future. I, I don't I don't get excited about things in technology since I've been a student of science fiction, right? Because science fiction basically has laid all of it out for you anyway. You know, even if you watch five science fiction movies back to back, I can tell you, you're not going to get excited about GPT, right? Because it's going to happen. It's going to happen even if you take 10% of what's going to happen in the future. So you'll see people who are science fiction buffs who were like mm, yeah yeah mm, yeah? I knew it's going to happen anyway. You know, the ninth book I read at some point had another version of Chat GPT, which was way more advanced. So I've been, by the way, Straight Talk has allowed me to get connected to science fiction again. So I used to watch Star Trek. Going back to this, nevertheless. And I realized there was another dimension of Star Trek that was going on, another dynamic, should I say, on the starship, which was the fact that human beings, like Captain Kirk and his deputy and various others, firstly, his team was diverse. He had a black woman, most uh, he had a black woman on the team. She was she looked after all of the technical stuff, yeah, on the team. He had a robot, you know, who was you know uh, able to to. Even Jean-Luc Picard later on, who was the next captain, Commander Data, for example, was able to compute at a whole new level, like a, you know, humanoid uh, or, you know, a form of an Android. You know, he was the singularity, basically, to a large extent. He was there, uh, diverse. Then he had, of course, other women and other men. Then he had a Klingon or someone from another background who looked visibly different and had a senior leadership position and so on and so forth. And I realized that there were different people on his leadership team from different worlds, Making decisions, helping the, the 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 ship move through one dimension to another, and without those people, diverse group, he wouldn't be able to do it. Uh, he was a white man, of course. Captain Kirk was a white man. Jean-Luc Picard was a white man, and then they changed it. They they changed their there was, of course, they brought a they brought a black a man as a uh, the captain as well at some point. Um, I had stopped watch, watching it, and then I stopped at Jean-Luc Picard, and I also realized that. On that ship, there were people who looked different, diverse, different, you know, different backgrounds, Ferengis and, like I said, Klingons and various other, you know, races and cultures who looked visibly different. You know, someone had an eye ear that was a bit odd, someone's head was odd, odd, someone had three eyes, or whatever it may be, someone was, you know, of a different color, like green or blue or whatever it may be. And they were in a relationship with a human being, and it was fine. And they had a. In many cases, they even had kids who looked a little bit human and a little bit the other way. And I used to watch this stuff and think, "Oh, right. So they they must find each other attractive, and they've got kids. So this is normal. And that's where I figured out that diversity is going to be default in the future, whether I like it or not. You know, when I'm dead and gone, it is going to be part of the future. So I know. I you know, frankly, I know it's going to be a world where everyone's diverse, diverse species, people from different planets. Different from different civilizations coming together and and being one. That was my education in diversity. So I don't want to like to I don't want to say I read some book and it changed my mindset. Honestly, it was the TV show. I realized that that's what diversity is. It's going to happen.
0: That that's so amazing. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I, I think you're right. I don't know if you're aware, but in Buddhism, one yeah. of the tenets is imagination. Um, right. And and Buddhists believe that you can. you you can reach that that state um, through imagination. And without imagination, we have nothing. Um, And there's also the quote, for anything to happen in the real world, it has to happen in the imaginary world first. So you're absolutely right there. Um, And bringing in diversity, there's no one object in the world that can keep the rest of humanity working. I mean, we say it's oxygen, but if you took away or let's say we had oxygen, but you didn't have water, it wouldn't work. And it's the same. It's the same for our species. We will thrive if we keep diversity going. So brilliant. Please carry on then.
1: Yeah. And I look at I look at it really simply as well, uh, Vandana, when it comes to business, for example, and it's I don't know, maybe it's oversimplistic. There are eight billion people in the world now and so many countries, right? And we, we know that the world order is changing. So different people will have power at different f- phases of, of of you know, humanity. Some will have more weapons, some will have less, some will have more AI, some will have more trade, more GDP, et cetera, et cetera. And it will just keep changing. Um, when you're building something, and I figured this out as a startup founder, an entrepreneur, and, um, you know, just talking to loads of people and stuff and understanding business, I cannot understand why you wouldn't have different people on your team uh, who look at the world differently. So it is, I just cannot understand any other perspective, but the perspective of diversity where people will bring their individual experiences. Someone speaks five languages. Someone speaks two. Someone speaks one. Someone's from the North. Someone's from the East, West, South, and everyone has their own experiences that they bring to the table. And why is that important? Because... You realize that you can make better decisions that are more informed. You realize that you can try and take away bias. You know we know the the, the perils of bias, unconscious bias, or this concept of groupthink, where I just agree with you because you're the senior person in the room and you're a man and you're you know whatever whatever else. And that happened during two thousand and eight in the crisis, and Daniel Kahneman, a great author, you know, proved this in his research multiple times, where he said, Look, it was clear that there was groupthink happening at some of these largest banks, and no one wanted to question the CEO because, of course, their careers depended on it, their lifestyle depended on it, their bonuses, uh, who they were, their identity depended on it. You know, uh, it's, it's as deep as that. So, no one really wanted to, to rock the apple cart. And so, if you, if you bring in people from different backgrounds, they will force you to think about so many different perspectives when you're making an important decision. That's one. one. Second, even more obvious is that your customers come from diverse backgrounds. If you are deciding to seize opportunities in global markets at any point, and you've got to listen to the, the, those customers culturally, you've got to understand their habits, their behaviors, and you can't just do that by hiring a, an Indian person out of India, and that's the end of it. That person needs to have a voice at boardroom level. So, at the point at which India exceeds other economies, you don't look back thinking, oh my God, surely we should have invested more in India at that point. You're already taking steps forward. You've got foresight, and tomorrow it's another country, and then it's another country, and so on and so forth. So, I cannot understand why organizations haven't figured out that diversity is going to be a default um, superpower, in the next 20, 30 years. Maybe not the next three to five because they are busy doing their quarterly numbers. I don't know, whatever it may be. But certainly in the future, it, it just cannot, I cannot understand why someone cannot understand that. So, with that in mind, you know, I know diversity, I figured out, you know, back to diversity economics. And as you know, I have built an, a research think tank called Diversity Economics Institute, which I built on the back of the learning from Straight Talk. So, diversity. Economics Institute is solving certain problems that I couldn't solve on Straight Talk because I was having the conversations, right? And that's why I had to build it because I had to do something about this. There was a sense of urgency that has compelled action, which, by the way, is one of the the the, the deliverables of Straight Talk. That when you listen to this stuff, eventually it should create a sense of urgency that should compel action. Whatever you end up doing, whatever. You end up doing as big or small as it may be, and who decides what that is anyway? So I decided to build Diversity Economics Institute, and so what is it doing? So Diversity Economics Institute, I, I figured out fundamentally, is solving the first problem, which is the fact that any movement, any revolution, be it the civil rights movement or uh, you know the um, f- the British leaving India, the Free India movement. Um, that Gandhi pioneered, or what Malcolm X did for, you know, again, the Black community in Harlem, you know, uh, in, in the United States, and the numerous examples of campaigners, you know, and leaders who have told stories. Even Obama, to a large extent, you know, was revolutionary in his own way, being a Black man, being the president of the United States. For any movement to, to turn into a revolution or a um collective cause that then leads to collective action that leads to change, mass change over a period of time, you need unity and some form of glue that binds communities together. Now, in the diverse community space, I realized I had about a hundred different dialogues with people across six diverse communities. Those diverse, diverse communities are, you know, gender, race the popular ones, of course, LGBTQ+, which is rising in popularity, uh, neurocognodiverse, not so popular, unfortunately, a lot of work to be done there, uh, physical constraints and abilities, totally, you know, uh, underrepresented, uh, multi-generational, you know, age and multi-generational, the Gen Z, the Gen Alpha, who we're, we're trying to connect with, we can't figure it out. One generation can't understand why they do this, uh, why they do things in a particular way. The other generation can't figure out why they behave in such archaic way and so on and so forth. So that connection needs to be built if these people are going to become the leaders of tomorrow. It's not just about putting in place good jobs and salaries and, you know, free incentives and, you know, uh, beanbags. You've got to do a lot more than that. And um, who am I missing? Um, and I've got, I mean, that's, that's it, six. I've got six. Yeah. yeah, got six. yeah. yeah. So... I figured out across these communities that one doesn't know the other, that's for sure. But even within each one of them, there is mass fragmentation. One LGBTQ plus community in one part of the world, like Delhi, is not talking to similar cluster in Pune. The same thing goes for the West. You know, one LGBTQ community in London it doesn't know what the, the one is doing in Manchester. I mean, I'm just talking inter-country, forget cross-country. And so there's a lot of fragmentation. And I thought, well, how do I address this? There are many ways to do it. I thought, well, why don't we let others know that they they exist? One should know that the other one exists. Forget the glue; they don't even know they exist yet. And at the most basic level, creating some sort of a a database or directory, free open source, is so sensible because in it in a nice taxonomy and labeling system, so you can find who you want to find in which country and figure out what they do. So you can encourage collaboration. You can encourage someone to pick up the phone, you know, metaphorically speaking or so to speak, or reach out to someone to say, hey, I, I know you're doing this in this area. Do you think you want to collaborate with me? And until and unless you do that, you can't raise funds. You need funds to be able to create change. You can't therefore run marketing campaigns. You can't recruit people and so on. So that was one problem I'm solving. I also figured out the second problem was the type of research that was being done was very survey driven. And you know, all the research I've seen in the business community is 40% of that, 7% feel down happy, 9% feel this. And it's great. But after you read so many data points, and I have done, it's sort of you get desensitized to it. And I'm sure many people do who are corporate leaders, probably get desensitized to it. It means nothing really. And then you have to go deeper into who did the survey, how many people did it, what's the sample group, blah, blah, blah. And then you realize that that's not the best way of convincing skeptics. And I want to really state that I'm trying to convince skeptics here as well, who believe DNI isn't unnecessary or a fad, who believe this is just another, you know, movement by the woke or the leftists or whatever it may be. I think we need to talk in their language and data is a very powerful way to convince the most ardent skeptic to believe like fine, we'll do it if I'm going to get 20% growth in the business. And, and, you know, I don't expect everyone to be joyful jumping on the top of rooftops and saying, hey, diversity and inclusion is the best thing since sliced bread. Because I know, I mean, that's the diversity of people. It's great that we're all different. There are a lot of people who won't be supporting this, They, they don't want diverse people, they want to stick with what they know. And change is very hard for people to swallow. So the second element is the way research is done. I feel if you do research by talking to the first group, you know, experts in the domain who understand their microcosm, they understand their diverse communities, and talking to them regularly to understand lived experiences, stories. Human beings only change when there is something emotive. They don't change just on opinion or even fact alone. You need some story that emote, you know, creates an emotive response. In their limbic system and forces them to at least consider for that one second or that moment that you may have something useful to say. And so yeah. that's the second element, changing the entire research dynamic and how you conduct research. So it includes lived experiences as a default. It's not something you do as a, you know, icing on the cake. The third element, uh, Vandana, is. The, the NASDAQ listed companies, the FTSE listed companies, every every global listed company has, is producing, as a tick box exercise, a DEI strategy, right? There are loads out there. I won't comment too much on it, but the problem I'm solving here is no one is adjudicating them. No one is objectively analyzing them. No one is trying to even figure out whether what they said in 2021, 2022 has ever happened and to what extent. And no one's trying to understand whether it was done on the grounds that it should have been done on. And to give you a great example, you know, I'm using generative AI and all sorts of very clever technology, like ChatGPT as well, to go through terabytes and terabytes of published documents. Because human beings, again, it's not because I don't want human beings to do it. One, I can't afford to, but secondly, I also realize that human beings now have deep unconscious biases. So, you know, even if I get an MBA somewhere in the world to do it and I give a pile of reports and say, go analyze and come back to me. I don't know their background. I don't know the way they think. I don't know the way they've been groomed. I don't know if they're anti-gay rights. I, and so when they come back with such a topic, such a sensitive topic, it's not company numbers. That's not company numbers. This is a very sensitive issue. It's about people. It's about people's survival, existence, well-being, recognition, and so on. You know, you have to put in some form of a consistent approach and AI was the best route to do it. And I figured out that some of these policies, some of these strategies, um, are reactionary. So there's been some sort of a, a case or some sort of a scandal in a company against a p- particular person in a, a marginalized community or protected community who's then sued that organization. And the PR teams got activated and said, right, DNI strategy, we need to talk about this community it loads. And I can see that in keywords, I can see that in NLP search. And that's the power of tech where you can make inferences and see things you can't see with the naked eye, no matter how clever you are. So that's the the third problem I'm solving. The fourth one, finally, is people like you and I have scars, right? And we have experiences and we have to be able to share our experiences in a positive way with someone else to inspire them as a mentor. We all want to do this an hour a week, an hour a month, half an hour a week, whatever it may be. And I figure out if we could create some sort of a, a technology-oriented super app or a community where people in jobs who want to talk to um, another person who's like them—a woman, brown woman, banking, Pune accountant, whatever—can find that person in using technology and have that dialogue and vent their fears or concerns and be be um, comfortable knowing that okay, there's a better way forward. And why I say that is because Harvard study, which is beautiful, which says basically sixty five percent of of people in in jobs feel disconnected with their coworkers, and if you if you're already disconnected with your coworker. I, you're not maybe going out and partying with them or socializing with them or discussing sensitive issues. How are you going to discuss a grievance or your feeling about a DNI-related issue with them? You're not, including your manager. So, you go off and you vent your frustration on forums, and it happens already, layoffs.com, fishbowl. You go complain about the company and bitch about the company. No company wants that. They want to tackle that there. And why not have an environment where they're going to speak to someone who can actually give them a way forward based on their personal experience? So, that's the fourth problem in solving. I want to tell you finally that the diversity, inclusion, equity market, and so on, DEI market, is going to get to about $30 billion based on McKinsey and World Economic Forum research by 2030, give or take. It's currently at about $10.6 billion. So it's going to jump 13.4% to 13.6% CAGR, um, compound annual growth rate uh, of, of this budget increase, which is significant, maybe it'll, it'll jump even higher as we start to realize with the work that Diversity Economics Institute and other institutes do, that it's even more important and it deserves much higher numbers, more zeros at the end of it. Um, and I'll finally close you know, by, by giving you three very important data points that are a little bit sort of concerning. When you speak to HR leaders, right, they say, in fact, 97%, this is Harvard research, Say that, oh, we're we're doing a fantastic job of D and I. We've made some real change. And unfortunately, only 37% of their employees believe that. Look at that, look at the delta. Okay. And this is the problem with Ivory Tower thinking. Yeah. 25% of employees also say um, that issues of race inequity, um, only only 25% believe issues of race inequity are actually openly discussed. Right, the rest don't believe it's being discussed or aired. Going back to my points about connectedness, not feeling comfortable in that environment, and most HR leaders, of 86%, say that they're really confident that the company will do the right thing if someone raises a DNI issue around ethics, integrity, anything like that. And only 35% of the employees believe the same. So, what you believe as a leader at board level, C level, is one thing. You need to bring diverse people into that dialogue right at the beginning to sanity check and to normalize and to uh, cut through all of the the noise uh, and biases that have been created. Or your manager has given you the right answer because he or she's worried about their job. You know, that's where groupthink kicks in. So anyway, that's my mission and journey. I'll pause there a lot of talking, but of course, it's an important topic. No, no, but
0: it's great. It's great hearing about the four... The four areas that you're concentrated on, and um, understanding, you know, that you're trying to get this holistic um, yeah. impact of diversity and um, being yeah. shown. Which of your, you know, which of the speakers uh, or the guests that you've had on Straight Talk, apart from, for example, someone like Mary, have um, have influenced your thinking on this area.
1: Yeah, I mean, what a great question and so many. So let me first start with LGBTQ rights and so on. A great education was when I brought on Sharif Rangnicka on my show. He's written two books. Uh, he's, a, he's a gay man living in India, pretty much pioneering that movement with a bunch of other people. He wrote this book called Queer Sapien. And, you know, I had a great, very, very straight-talking conversation with him about his life and his journey and how he feels about uh, Section Three seven seven, which was the the penal code, the ruling against um, gay people, um, which was then overturned in two thousand and eighteen. Uh, and he talked about his personal life and his journey, and he explained to me again stories, lived experiences, how he felt being marginalised as a gay man, and why is he gay? Why does he think he feels the way he feels? And how does he live his life? What are relationships for him? we even talked about gay bars and I, you know, we even talked about the fact that why don't you let, you know, heterosexual people into gay bars? He said, you do. I said, but they don't turn up because, you know, and and I was talking about, you know, the classic man who won't go into a gay bar because they think they're going to get jumped, you know, things like that, tackling issues like that, because you have to tackle. I just feel like you've got to speak in a straight talking way about these issues to be able to get them dealt with. Otherwise, you know, you have all of this other, Stuff going on and nonsense around people writing articles and sharing views and opinions that aren't really informed and no real dialogue has happened. You know, I I spoke to a fantastic gentleman from City, the City Group. Oh, you know, I won't name because I'm sure he probably doesn't want to be named here. But he said, you know, I'm a black man living in this white area in the States. Very senior guy at City and very influential and so on. You know, the coach of the local football team, the whole lot. And he said. the, the some of the, the local neighbors, you know, he's there. Are not many black black people in that community. He's probably the 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 only one. There are a few scatter around, and that's fine. He said that's fine as long as there are more than ten. There's a problem, but that's fine <laughs> as long as we're a minority in that community. And he said someone asked me the other day asked me said, uh, dear friend of mine, we were having a conversation, and it, the the you know the the race issue came up. And he had very strong opinions about black people, deep, r- deep rooted prejudice and bias. And this guy was shocked. He said, what are you saying? We've known each other for 25 years. He said, but you're fine. It's those guys that I have a problem with. And so look at this, right? Look at this. This is how deep rooted it is. You don't even know you're doing it. OK, yeah. uh, I've had, uh, you know, John Amici about John uh, Amici is about to come on my show. There's a brilliant book, The Promises of Giants, highly rated book. He's based in the UK, Next NBA player, basketball player, right. Based in the UK and came out, he he's gay, he came out a while back. And this is what he looks like, you know, and, um, he runs a wow. consultancy. He talked about his journey. Gosh, it must've been a nightmare. I mean, Adam Grant has given him a, a you know, a glowing uh, statement on the front of his book, which is, which is huge. And he, um, um, he talks about how you fill the leadership void. You know, he's not just talking about diversity and so on and LGBTQ rights. Because he, he understands this is a leadership-related issue, back to my earlier point. And you know, he one statement he made was that af I'm going in, because I said to him, Look, why aren't you just making a you can make a huge difference? You're an ex, you know, star, you've got a huge following, you know, you're all over social media, et cetera, et cetera. He said, I do, but let me tell you this. I get the breadcrumbs of the DNI budget when I go into large organisations. They call me midpoint or later, or right at the beginning to just g people up, get them going, and then I don't get the work. My consultancy doesn't get the work, but EY and all these other consultancies—I'm not just having a go at EY, but you know—all of these consultancies end up getting the millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars of business. So this is a problem. Another problem, which is again a contradiction. So you bring this guy in to tackle the DNI problem. You say I'm supplier diverse, but actually the budget you're spending is disproportionate towards the bigger companies. Mm-hmm. And the funniest thing is, I do know through the grapevine that some of these consulting organizations have people leading diversity who are not diverse.
0: Yeah. So, the funniest I mean, thing ever. That is, that is a huge challenge. And in fact, I remember in Mary Fra- Frances Winter, in her yeah. talk, she she talked about, you know, her dream, if you gave her the wand, would be that, you know, the problem is that whenever there's a downturn, these are the programs that are cut yeah. the first. Yeah. And actually, yeah. they're the ones that are really needed throughout the, um, you know, they need to be carried on because diversity is a journey. It's not something you can just switch on. Okay, today you're important. Oh, tomorrow we don't have budget, so you're no longer important. So yeah. just go back to being who you are. And when we've got budget, we'll come back to you. I mean, it's, it's quite crazy.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, I've even had people like, you're right, you know, recently I had these two brilliant women on my show, authors, Dr. Tina Ope and Beth A. Livingston. Um, you know, Tina is a a professor at babson college you know, you know prolific institution beth is um at university of iowa if i remember correctly and they've written this book called shared sisterhood and it's not just about all women you know uh, it's not just a, everyone all the women should come together it's not that sort of a book it, the the subtitle is how to take collective action for racial and gender e- equity at work collective action remember the point i was talking about earlier And they've laid out models and approaches and experiences in there. Um, And they've talked about, you know, things like courage and confidence, conviction uh, and campaigning and and various other things that you have to think about if you want to really go from point zero to point uh, 10, you know, at the end of this and complete this journey as much as possible, as quickly as possible. And, uh, you know, even... Uh, this is great I mean Jennifer Brown I just have to state this she's a prolific author as well she's her re- recent book is how to be an inclusive leader your role in creating cultures of belonging where everyone can thrive this is a fourth or fifth book and she's a white woman blonde hair white woman now someone would say you know this is ridiculous how can a white woman she's a woman that's it you know how how can she write about uh, inclusive leadership in terms of fourth women have uh, white women have privilege anyway speak to a black woman right they'll say yeah it's fine but really you will get the job before me And so it's very interesting because you know the the dynamics into in, inter community are also quite fascinating and she said right up front she goes look she started off with af I'm a white woman and I'm out you know I'm LGBTQ and so and so she's in she's what we call intersectional. she falls into multiple sections, multiple diverse communities and there are many people like that who can therefore empathize and relate, to the, the concept of marginalization, right? Because they have been marginalized. They have been discriminated against, and therefore they have that lived experience. They have that emotion. They have the stories to tell. So I've, I've also realized not to judge a book by its cover again and again in my life, you know, just because you see someone who's like, you're not, you're definitely not diverse, mate. I'm diverse. You're not diverse. Until yeah, yeah. You know, you got to dig deeper and figure out why why that person is diverse, why that person is marginalized. Um, even abuse, domestic abuse, for example, is a classification of a diverse community that's, that's protected, marginalized and discriminated against. So it's not straightforward, you know, it's complex, but we're scratching the surface, surface uh, Vandana. I don't think, you know, honestly speaking, I don't think people have got this yet. And, you know, even some of my dearest friends and I sit around, we have beers and coffees and stuff. I figure out that there's a lot of work to be done. You know, and I do yeah. this. Three I've been doing straight talk and everyone sees it. Even with all of that, people have inherent biases. Mm-hmm. They jump to conclusions about communities. Um, we all do it. We all, in you know, pained with some of this prejudice.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, the great thing is with the work that you're doing, you're giving people hard facts, you're giving them data, yeah. but yeah. you're also giving them stories. And those are the two things, like you say, it changes the limbic system. Um, and whilst I would love to keep talking about the diversity, um, you know, the diversity piece and, and what you're doing yeah. with the Institute, I also think that we need to go on to the piece about being human, um, yeah. because ultimately yeah. diversity is about, you know, honouring humanity yeah. in, in, in the way it is. Yeah. And, and if it's OK with you, I'll, I'll pole vault <laughs> to, the, to the next, you know, sort of theme that, that comes yeah. up a lot. Um, yeah. And that is about being human. It is about saying, okay, there's there's factual scientific evidence on one side, which, yeah. to be fair, has only been going for about three or four hundred years. And then there's a lot of, I'm not going to call it Eastern medicine, but I'm going to talk about ancient practices that have been going for thousands of years. And they've almost, and never the twain shall meet, unless your name's off and you're bringing them together. Right. So, so talk to us a little bit about the theme of being human, yeah. and about you know Joe Dispenza and some of the others that you've um, that you've spoken to that have altered your thinking on the on this area.
1: Yeah, so I haven't yet spoken to Joe Dispenza, but I'm going to get him on the show at some point. Um, he's doing a lot of amazing work around using chemistry and putting a brain under an EEG machine and trying to figure out how altered states, you know. Theta, beta, alpha states Mm -hmm. um, give you different levels of realizations and you can tap into your consciousness better at at one frequency versus another. And I think what he's trying to do and, you know, it's the scientific Western approach as well, is trying to figure out and unpack uh, stuff that is harder to explain. And he's been trying to do that for a number of years and, you know, he's making some excellent progress in that regard pretty much enabling you and me to realize, okay, on the one hand, we understand why we need to meditate and why we need to be in connection with the inner self and ask ourselves deeper questions and work on ourselves through yoga and all of the other things and Ayurvedic diets and traditional Chinese medicine and Tibetan medicine and so on and so forth. But actually, on the other hand, you know, again, this goes back to trying to convince people. This goes back to trying to understand that different people – make up their minds with different types of information and different experiences. Not everyone will just buy into the meditation story. Other people need data and, and, and so on and so forth. So he's he's essentially you know fascinating. He's saying, look, if you can know that when you're stressed out, let's say you've had a bad day and you're stressed out and you're biting your nails or whatever symptom you're showing of stress, that you have an activation of a certain chemical in your body, be it cortisol in this case. And cortisol is almost like acids, you know, traveling through your body, destroying your cells, destroying your um, uh, mitochondria, destroying your state, your frequency, altering your frequency towards a frequency that's less conducive to the the quantum around you. And, And he's saying whatever you emit or whatever you transmit, should I say, you're getting back it's think of it as a field in the quantum you're getting back and if you transmit happiness and joy and goodness and positive behavior you'll get that back and he's been studying that through the quantum fields you know this is taking the the whole um you know secret the book the secret that was published many many years ago to a whole new level right where he's trying to unpack the science of, of that book around visualization and the power of visualization and things like that. This is taking it to a much deeper level. Then you have people who've been looking at the softer side of human development through meditation and consciousness and, and yoga. And you know, I've been privileged to have some incredible authors who've been studying this. I recently had um the great Chris Johnston on my show, who's written this fantastic book called Active Hope, a very popular book with the subtitle How to Face the Mess We're In Without Going Crazy. And you know the book is really is really digging deep into what I refer to as making friends with uncertainty, and trying to figure out what sort of um, what sort of experiences do you need to be aware of, based on your childhood, for example, and your past. And how you need to tackle those experiences head on to be able to move on from those experiences, rather than burying those experiences, which is what we try and do, and forget about them. You know, we buy more houses or cars and drink more and eat more uh, to try and forget about things. And um, it's it's you know, Chris, in his very soft and gentle way, helped me understand that hope is a very important aspect of what makes us human. This is going back to humanism and being human. And you know, technology doesn't have that, AI doesn't have that. Hope and love, hope and love are the two big differentiators mm-hmm. of what it means to be human. And you know, and then I also spoke to another lady called Vandana uh, Puriya who wrote yes. this book. Um, and the book's called Let Me Hijack Your Mind, um, based on you know a lot of conversations with Alik Padumpsi. And um, Vandana, when I spoke to you, it was what was fascinating. For me, I mean, the the subtitle is restart your life with freedom. And so if you take each word, restart um, life, your your life uh, and freedom. Right. And so what I took away from this book and it's got many chapters, it's a lot to do with India. And I understand that for a lot of readers do go and buy the book. But what I learned from your conversation in this book was that. these concept, this concept that you talk about of realities, like different planets, you know, the imagination, trying to step away from the this reality of ours. For some people, this reality like now is amazing, but a lot of people it's not amazing. And it's very important for them to then extrapolate or travel out, teleport into a new reality, a new imagination. Call it dreams, call it dreaming. But what that dreaming does going back to neuroscience or otherwise is that it changes the chemical reactions in your mind mm-hmm. and then that quantum thing comes back into play and you've got to find techniques that allows you to go into these new realities and new planets whatever those planets are whatever you may be doing on those planets those you know um uh realities are, that you've so created for yourself there are different realms that you've yeah. created for yourself and Uh, One of the other great things about this was this concept of freedom, And I think, you know, when you think about the mind and you think about what it means to be human, it is, it's clear to me that the tyranny of time and, you know, the great author um, Charles Eisenstein, who we've had on the show twice, you know, he's a great, great author, brilliant, brilliant man and brilliant thinker, talks about the tyranny of time Quite a lot where he's saying, you know, we've been forced to think in these boxes for the last 50 or 100 years, thanks to certain people in the world. And the nine to five, the clocking in, the clocking out, um, started off in the factories, and then we just carried it through into the corporate environment, don't understand why, and said, well, if their factories work at this time, it's important we work at that time too, for whatever reason, right? And without any thinking, can you believe human beings do this, without any critique, without any review, without any reflection, without anyone saying, no, I don't think it works well. The whole system around us has been built on this nine to five concept globally. I mean, globally, fine. You can move a few hours back and forth with time zones. Schools have been built on that system. Hospitals have been built on that system. Facilities, services, emergency services, I mean, they're on 24 seven, but still doctors are supposed to come in at, in the morning. And leave in the evening, and uh, but it's a twenty four hour job. We know that anyway. I feel sorry for the doctors. I really have a lot of respect for them. They saved my life many times. So this concept of freedom, and India is a great example of of this bizarre feeling of freedom. It's so hard to explain until you make a visit there, and you just come out of the plane and you just walk the streets, and you know you see all this this traffic going back and forth, and you could probably be knocked down statistically, but you just don't get knocked down as frequently as you might think on a spreadsheet, right? <laughs> Just, yes. it, it it defies uh, all, all logic, really, because um, it's phenomenal. You have to study India in that way. And so that this book that you know you wrote has taught me that, Vandana. Um, I then also spoke to Ed Hajim. I mean, what a guy, Ed Hajim, who wrote On the Road Less Traveled, An Unlikely Journey from the Orphanage to the Boardroom. And, you know, a veteran, he's written his second book, It's a Fable, uh, and hopefully he'll come back on the show. What a great man, Um, huge family, you know, many grandchildren, eight grandchildren um, in his 80s now. He's done everything, but he has spent most of his younger years in orphanages, orphanage to orphanage, foster home to foster home. And it's a painful, horrible story and how he has built resilience and gets through that How he is so simple in his thinking, and this is the thing I worked out, even with my troubled times. This is not some complex analysis, I mean, we're having an intellectual conversation. It's really simple, it is really simple, and once you make up your mind, you want to come out of a situation, and you need help to make up your mind sometimes, you're not always uh, superhuman or self-motivated to do it then you just go for it knowing that as long as you take certain steps you trust the process outcomes will come don't get wedded to the destination don't get wedded to the time frame again that's something i've learned the hard way from my corporate job i was way too wedded to the time frame it affected my mind it was affecting me being human i was making the wrong calls treating people different in a different way not being as empathetic or compassionate or sympathetic as i should be as a human being and you know ed hagen he's he's taught me this i mean i was privilege to spend time with with him and the painful story of his journey and then how he became the CEO of various banks in the United States. He runs his own hedge fund. he's giving he's he's the largest donor to Rochester University in the United States ever and educating people all around the world. It's just been amazing. a final thing I want to say is that with with minds, with the mind, I've also had you know people like Pete Cadence who is, he hasn't written a book per se yet, but he made loads of money in the marijuana industry. And let me tell you this, why this is important, because he's a white man and he said, I'm a white man and I made loads of money in the marijuana industry, loads of money. And I exited. If I was a black man, I would be in jail. And he said, it's as simple as that. And he said, I know it firsthand. And so I've dedicated my life to helping the underprivileged, especially the black community in and around where he lives. And he's done wonderful work. And he said, because I'm privileged, I'm lucky because of my race. And I know that. And so he's done, he's doing everything he can to educate people who don't have what he does. I've learned from people like, like him to be human and long story short, being human means generosity, the ability to listen, the ability to get, to give time. Like you say, if you don't have money, don't think you can't be generous. Give your time, give your expertise, give your knowledge, you know, feed people, go give coaching to someone, whatever it may be, I figured out that if we could just be more giving as people and focus much more on loving and hanging around with people who love us and we love them, at the point of death, and I've also realized that I have a limited time on this earth because of my ill health. I have two beautiful children who are very young, but I'm very conscious now and I've had this realization, believe it or not, very recently, uh, that my time is now limited. I could, because of my illnesses and ailments, you know, be be gone, right? And I've been studying that a lot because I've been—it's a—it's a a brutal reality of my life. Other people may not be wedded to it, or you know, don't um, uh, don't want to tackle this issue. But I have a limited time on this earth. If something happens to me tomorrow, I want to feel like I've got um, loved loved ones around me if I'm awake before I die. I have loved ones around me who care for me and I've done good by them. That's it. No houses, no cars, no straight talks, you know, everything just fades away and goes away. So I've, I've learned these lessons from straight talk. You know, I've learned these lessons from straight talk.
0: That's I mean, that's so beautiful. And that's a a good place for us to, to kind of um, wrap up on. I know it's been a really long session, but just, just hearing um, you know there's a couple of things I'll pick up from what you just said um yeah. it goes back to and and this is no offense to white man but it's white man privilege you know even with medicine it's been it's been as as you must know medicine it has been tested on caucasian men much yeah. more which is why women have a lot of challenges with uh, the medicines that, that are then given to them and side effects etc you know things like the menopause, menopause and other things that are going on with women aren't aren't looked at as as much or with as much seriousness so so there's all of that but fundamentally i think pulling it all back to what i'm hearing you say is that there's what what you found from straight talk is a way of internally having the freedom yeah to choose um how to live your life and in that process, what you found is by loving and by giving and by generating belonging, because it's not creating it; it's generating belonging. Um, we we actually evolve better together, and um, I think you talk about accelerated awareness. Um, I think it's accelerated awareness that actually collective energy, collective mm. consciousness coming together can solve a lot of these big challenges um that we have we just need to stick together so um I think I think that's really superb I think it's been so fascinating for me to to mine your mind and get all of these points out I think I'd just like to end by asking you uh, a couple of questions who would you like to interview next who who who's like top yeah. of your list and yeah. um if we were doing the two hundredth episode, what would you like to have achieved by then?
1: Yeah uh, so I'd like to interview Barack Obama and so I'm working on that and I will get him on the show whenever so I've learned not to put time frames on things you know the hard way okay. but uh, but have a, a visual Image of it And and understand why I want to have him on the show and Not just because he's Barack Obama eh? That's not compelling enough That would be a terrible interview mm-hmm. You know, just because I'm in awe of the fact That I've got this man on the show It has to be much deeper So I'm studying his books right now And trying to figure out what he's written And why he's written it And um, and for now, it's definitely Barack Obama Who I'd love to have on the show And um, where would I like to be On the 200th episode? Yeah, I would. I would love for us to be in a place where I have many more stories of people who have enjoyed the show and have made some sort of a difference. I think I need to do a lot of work in that space right now. And uh, we definitely need some money and funding to be able to get to that point. I think we've been the last three years doing this on a shoestring and I've been sort of funding it. But I think I've got to think about how we can, without destroying the efficacy and the values and the ideology of this, And disturbing it in any way we need to bring in some capital and um i'd love the 200th episode to be a place where i have um um, videos of people who are very well-known people and also people you've never seen in your life who are sharing you know their testimonials uh, about how this has made a difference to them, not just the guests, but also those who have experienced the show. That's what I'm saying. The people who are uh, the, the straight talkers who say, wow, this is this has done this for me. And I, I need to hear those stories because of straight talk, I was able to understand what, how a gay man thinks. Or because of straight talk, I realized there was someone called Vandana Siksana, and she is a British Indian entrepreneur with an OBE who decided to move to Pune? I figure out what I figured out why I couldn't figure out why what the hell she's doing there, and now I figured out what impact she's making in the world. Just that discovery of other humans and their brilliant work is how society will just be more cohesive and and uh, come together as one. I hate divided societies and hatred. I think that's so bad. It's bad enough to have war and geopolitics and all this other. Uh, nonsense going on. We don't need human beings to go out of their way to create divide and destruction with with one another. So that's that's what I would think. But I've decided not to, um, I've also learned the hard way not to plan too much. I go with the flow. I stay in the now. Now I'm having the conversation with you. That's all I know. And -hmm. then I'm off to a soft play with my two kids. That's Mm -hmm. all I know now. We'll figure yeah. out what happens in the future, you know, and uh, because God forbid, if I die tomorrow, <laughs> my plans are as useless as uh, the, the you know, the thought at that moment. So you know, I don't think about the tomorrow as much anymore.
0: Well, you know, one thing, one thing that I'll say is that um, people's names can be forgotten, but the ideas that they come up with yeah. are, are actually the things that can make the difference. So than. I think one of the things that I've loved uh, about um you know talking talking to you, uh, we've talked about uh, climate realism and we've talked about the negativities i I haven't really brought that up um, yeah. partly because of time and partly because um you know we we tend to get fatalistic about it, but I actually think that the more we can you you talk about connecting the dots and I think you've connected so many dots but Think of the dots as being seeds rather than dots and think about what's growing from each of them. And that complex adaptive system, ecosystem that you're creating with all the people who are listening and all the people who have been on your show and that community that you're causing and the ideas that are coming out of that. I think it's uh, giving us uh, a reason to live and a reason to see that we are not just surviving, but we can change it so that we thrive as a race as humanity um and and as those on planet earth that are hopefully going to take it forward so i will just say thank you so much it's been a a real pleasure i hope you've enjoyed yourself i hope you've got out all the points that you wanted to
1: yeah i've had a fantastic time i could do this for hours as you can imagine because there's so much more to say And as, as you ask questions, it taps into other areas and they get activated. You're like, Oh, what about this? But then of course, you know, for the purposes of the show, this is what we're talking about. Um, and you know, one day when we do a physical event, I forgot to say, I would like to do a straight talk, physical straight talk. event. Yeah. So I think that's definitely something on the cards one day in the future, we will do a physical one where we have more time. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think it's important to take your time to discuss issues and, I feel more comfortable with that rather than time boxing always. Mm-hmm. I, I know we have to time box because people don't have, you know, the, the patience or the energy or the attention span anymore. But we got to think about. I'm open to discussing, and if someone's got some ideas as to what other ways can we have time and and slow the time down to be mm-hmm. able to think and uh, figure out things rather than quickly get things done. And quickly figure them out. I think mm-hmm. that is a big problem, you know. This urgency is a big problem. And I'm not saying don't do it. There's a time and place for urgency, like sales, urgency, fine. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you don't need it. You know, sometimes you don't need to see, right? I've got to go now. I've got my next meeting. Just think about it's too many time. Yes, all man It's, man made. it's, yeah, it's all I mean.
0: man-made. Yeah. Man and if it's been made, it can be unmade.
1: So yeah, beautiful, it yeah.
0: Just, uh, it's just about um, instead of seeing it as time and boxing it, it's it's about seeing it as a journey and you need the time in between to elapse in order for us to kind of, you know, so perhaps the thing to do is to think about a series yeah. on each of these and um, look forward to being there as part of it and asking you some more.
1: Yeah, questions. for sure. For um, sure. We have some great guests lined up.
0: Yeah, exactly. So thank you so much. And thank, thank you so thank much. You your team as well for helping us put this episode together. And, yeah, and yeah. Like big, so big
1: thanks to the team. I just want to thank my entire team. You know, uh, they've been, I won't name them because they might get embarrassed, but they've been fantastic for the last three years. Many of them giving up their time voluntarily for the cause, which I'm deeply grateful for. They don't have to, but I guess they feel that there's something there that also helps them. And so there's a win-win. And I think the more you do that in life where you volunteer and you help people achieve a cause that can help other people, at scale then it's so much more fulfilling than just um you know counting the times and booking um billing really and that's fine you need to do that to pay bills so thank you to my entire team they're global from morocco to manchester to london to um even you know san francisco and uh, boston in fact yeah so thank you so much to all of you